Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. For this week's episode, we have a collection of two scary stories that I truly enjoy narrating. I hope that you'll like them, too. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Help Wanted, 8 Rules for House-Sitting a Mansion, written by Quincy Lee. Rule number one, never look at the gardener. Rule number two, enter doors only after knocking. Rule number three, the clocks need daily winding. Rule number four, House staff and visitors must mask. Rule number five. Every statue in the long hall must be completely covered. Rule number six. Three repeats for the grandfather clock. Set again before leaving. Rule number seven. Wrong deliveries occur daily. Only accept on the second attempt, not the first or third. Run the package to the center of the hedge maze. Leave the maze within five minutes. Rule number eight. Depart Kilgore Court for any video calls. Video and photography are strictly prohibited. I reviewed the list of rules from the advert one more time as I stepped off the bus. Crumbling stone walls bordered Victorian houses lining the narrow street. At the top of the hill, the current caretaker for Kilgore Court, Pim Perrin, met me beside a towering wrought iron gate. Small and straight-backed in a gray suit, he would have cut a dapper figure were it not for the ostentatious beaked and feathered mask that covered his face. Good morning, Sam Miller, said Pim, extending a wrinkled hand. Your references claim you excel at following instructions to the letter and have never broken a rule. Correct. I am task-oriented. People call me computer-like. I shrugged. Less flattering terms had been used for me. Inflexible, anal-retentive. I was not popular with classmates, who disliked my perfect obedience to all posted signs and placards. That is just what we need here, Sam. Now... Pim reached into a bag and from it pulled a feathered mask identical to his own but newer. Wear at all times except in the sitter's quarters. Why? I nearly asked but caught myself. Who was I to question the whims of the wealthy? Especially at the generous pay that I was being offered for my three-week stint while Mr. Kilgore and his staff went overseas. I heard the smile in Pim's voice as he said, It's alright for you to ask questions. Mr. Kilgore is a bit of an eccentric. Anyone who enters the house even for a short time must wear a mask. 
The magpie mask represents the sitter. Any other questions? I mentally reviewed the rules. Never look at the gardener. He is superb at his work but has an unusual deformity and becomes violent if anyone sees it. It is unlikely you will meet him but if your paths do cross, just keep your eyes averted and he won't bother you. Peculiar, but if the man excelled at his job, perhaps his skills were worth the inconvenience of his idiosyncrasies. The remaining rules seemed self-explanatory except rule number seven, the delivery. Oh, that, he chuckled. If you're still curious in three weeks, I'll tell you. Just be sure to leave the maze quickly. There are some flora at the center that induce pretty powerful hallucinogenic effects after more than a few minutes. Nothing bad will happen to you if you stay longer, but... I'll set a stopwatch. Good. The regular staff will attend to most things when you get back. Your presence is mostly for the packages and winding the clocks. Beyond these rules, the rest of the time you may spend at your leisure. Really, it, it's that simple. It's that simple. Pim agreed. And then the house... An ornate staircase wound upwards, flanked by towering columns stretching to a domed ceiling. The view outside the window showed a dazzling sea of green dotted with flowers like stars, and topiary animals dancing among them. Pim showed me a coat room with extra masks for visitors. He led me through each area of the mansion, knocking at each door, winding the clocks, and lastly checking all the dust covers in the long hall. Having finished nearly everything in under an hour, he took me out to the garden where, despite the beautiful greenery, the odor of rot wafted to us. Carrion flowers, explained Pim, sweeping his arm toward a variety of strange blossoms with spotted red petals as large as my arms. Their blossoms mimic the smell of decaying flesh, and we have a greenhouse too, full of orchids in the genus Bulbophil. His fingers caught my arm. A dark shape lumbered in our periphery. I almost turned my head. Rule number one, hissed Pim, his grip nearly cutting off my circulation. I kept my face resolutely forward, resisting the urge to flick my eyes to the lurching figure at my periphery. The gardener swung something trunk-like, an arm maybe, a gardening tool. I couldn't make out any features without looking. Face forward, do not look. A moment later, the gardener shuffled off. Pim released my arm. Apologies, he said. That surprised me, I don't remember this ever happening. Oh, it's alright, I probably would have looked if you hadn't reminded me. Just be alert when you're in the garden and averting your eyes will become second nature. Come, I'll show you the sitter's quarters and then we'll be done for the day. The sitter's quarters was a separate suite of rooms with a little balcony, a private bathroom with a clawfoot tub, a study and its own kitchen and laundry. This soup belonged to Pim himself though he told me. It is for these sitter's use and while I'm away... You will be the sitter, so use it as your own. Strange pictures hung on the wall. 
One, the bone closet depicted an ordinary closet door opening to a scribble of black. Scrawled circles that might have been eyes peering out. Another, statues, showed a figure in the long hall, reaching from under a dust cover, seemingly trying to grab a visitor by the ankle. The most disturbing, the skinless man depicted a figure who appeared to be stitched from a patchwork of skins, bits of him dropping away while he sewed on a new piece at his belly. Pim told me the artworks had all been rendered by the original caretaker, also named Pim Perrin. Apparently the name was passed like a title. From an old black and white photo, the original caretaker was Pim's opposite in every respect. Towering and heavy set where Pim was dainty. His face was also grotesquely disfigured. As for Pim, while he informed me that in this suite, masking was not required. Still, he kept his on, as much part of his uniform as his jacket and tie. One door in the suite led to a chamber that did not match the gothic decor. A security room with monitors to the front gate, veranda, and porch. The CCTV system is finicky, but you need not worry unless there's a break-in. Should any emergency arise, call me before anyone else, even the authorities. Pim took from his pocket the heavy brass key to the house, which he placed into my hand and then he pointed to a prominently framed list of rules on the wall. Obey them all, Sam. From now on, the rules are your software. Day 1 After performing my allotted tasks, I took out my laptop. No Wi-Fi, but I found that I could connect with my phone as a hotspot, and I typed up this post. I was in the middle of describing the pictures when the doorbell rang, so loudly that it made me jump. I nearly rushed to answer, but then remembered rule number seven. Absurdly, I had to ignore the initial delivery attempt. The rules are your software. The package I accepted on the second delivery was large and heavy. I held my breath against the smell of the carrion flowers and brought it to the center of the maze. I did not encounter the gardener. Day two. The long hall contains dozens of shrouded statues beneath its gold-gilded fresco ceiling. The heavy dust covers are always slipping off, hence rule number five. Every statue in the long hall must be completely covered. I was about halfway through checking the covers when behind me came a soft and whispery sheep. At first I thought it was a draft, but when it happened again... I looked back and noticed the arrangement of these statues had changed. One of the tall, shaded shapes was now closer to me than it had been a moment ago. Thinking that I had imagined it, I turned back to my task. But then it came again. The hairs on my neck stood straight. Even though I knew it was foolish, I couldn't get out of my head the artwork of a hand reaching out to drag in the nearest passerby. Still, I tried to ignore it and I continued my task. Again. I whirled and choked back a scream. A dozen of these shrouded statues loomed around me. The nearest had its arms extended, fingers poking from beneath the sheet, scarcely an inch away from my face so close that 
I glimpsed actual fingerprints swirled into the marble. A diamond glittered on its finger. My stomach clenched and I nearly fled. But my habit of obedience whispered. Rule number five. I forced my shaking fingers to tug the sheet over the statue until it was entirely covered. After checking the rest of them, I rushed for the door. Knock, whispered rule number two in my mind. As soon as I did, it was like a sigh went out of the room. I cast one final look back. The statues were all in their original positions. Day 3 A rule was broken. When the doorbell rang for the second delivery attempt, the driver shuffled his feet and asked, embarrassed, Uh, say do you think I could use the bathroom real quick? After consulting the rules, I retrieved a mask from the foyer cloakroom. Put this on. Oh, is there like a party or something? He laughed, turning over the elaborate mask. A goat that vaguely resembled his goateed face. Before putting it on. How do I look? I ushered him to the sitter's quarters bathroom. My only goal was to get him in and out. After a very quick few sounds, the toilet flushed and he emerged, raving about the fluffiness of the hand towels. I escorted him back out the front door to his delivery truck, relieved to watch him drive away. Afterward, I delivered the package to the maze, and then made myself tea while reading some notes written by the original caretaker. Judging by the ravings, they were in an old journal that I had found in the study. The man was quite insane. A common thread, various books and articles on the shelves detailed how members of the Kilgore family had gone mad or missing over the generations, and not only family. Supposedly quite a few visitors had died mysteriously or disappeared, including a bride on her wedding day, reminding me of the ring that I had seen on the marble finger of the hand reaching for me. Most of the reason Kilgore Court is booked for weddings and events is because people hope to see the lights flicker or an apparition float by, Pim told me yesterday, after I had called about the statues. And sometimes the staff obliged by tinkering with the electricity or wobbling the tables. He had insisted the moving statues was a hallucination, brought on by the hedge maze flora outside the long hall's windows and advised that chamomile tea would mitigate the effect. The doorbell rang. I ignored the ringing as I finished my tea, and then I went to use the bathroom. I froze. A small black phone lay on the edge of the sink. Crap, I hissed, snatching it up. The ringing hadn't been the third attempt. I darted to the CCTV. On the screen, the driver was at the front door banging. He flung his hands up and then walked down the porch steps and around to the garden. I rushed downstairs, scrambling to fasten my mask. A horrible feeling churned in the pit of my stomach. My feet flew over the marble floor as I dashed to the veranda and down the garden steps. At the bottom of the steps, I froze. The driver stood in the grass, keys dangling in his limp fingers, looking. I shut my eyes. Hey, hey you, I shouted. Visitors are prohibited from being out here. The driver ignored me. 
I staggered forward until I reached in and grabbed a hold of him. His body was rigid as if rigor mortis had set in. It felt as if he had flexed steel for muscles. I tried to tug him, but a strange sound came from his lips. A sort of chuckle. A stench made me gag. The man's bowels had loosened. And beneath the reek was something else. Something putrid like old meat. I let go of him and dry heaved. And that's when I saw it. Not looked at it. Thank God I only glimpsed it from the corner of my eye. Because if I had really looked... I doubt that I would have been able to tear myself away. The gardener stood at my periphery, broad-shouldered and enormous, with a face far too long and slick with oily skin. It was like liquefied flesh. The driver was petrified, twitching and giggling while the gardener took a lurching step forward. <sighs> a sound between a bellow and a moan shook the air. I panicked, slipping on the wet grass, dropping the driver's phone and scrambling back, mostly navigating by feel until my knuckles slammed up against the veranda steps. I scrabbled up, barely remembering to knock before entering and then dashing up to my quarters. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I dialed Pam, hand shaking. Rule one, I burst. Rule one. <laughs> Slow down, Sam. After listening to my babble, Pim interrupted with, Let me check the veranda camera. My fingers were already dancing over the keys, bringing up footage. The veranda camera only caught the back of the driver, still standing just as I had left him, viewed from behind as he gripped his keys and stared, his posture taut as a hair about to bolt. Suddenly he jerked the keys up to his face and jammed them into his eyes. I clapped a hand to my mouth. Sam, Sam, are you there? He, he's stabbing his own eyes. And the keys kept jamming in and out. Sam. Pim's voice was cool, calming as if speaking to a child. What you see on your screen and what I see on my phone screen are different. They're different because you've just come out of the maze. Look out the window, do you see anything in the driveway? I tore my gaze away from the CCTV and looked outside the window. No. If the driver had blinded himself, his van would still be there. He obviously needs his eyeballs to drive. Pim spoke dryly. You're imagining things. Drink some chamomile tea and then look at the cameras again. There's nothing there. The doorbell. Oh, I bolted upright. Maybe that's him now. Stop. Pim almost yelped. Rule number seven. Third delivery. Oh. I stammered, chastised. That was too close. No slip-ups, Sam, ever. Break a rule and we have to let you go. You won't have the money to move out of your parents' basement. They want you out, right? How was it that Pim Parent knew about that? Had I mentioned it in the interview? Or, of course... The address that I put on my application was the same as my parents. He was a very astute man, very exacting, like me. But whereas Pim was successful, I had failed at all my previous employment attempts into good relations with my family, because I'm too rigid, too inflexible. I am only good at obeying rules. 
If I cannot succeed at this job with its simple rules, then I can succeed at nothing. I drank the chamomile tea that Pim suggested and, after collecting myself, set the grandfather clock and departed. There was no trace of the driver out front, only the tracks of the delivery van. Whatever I had imagined I had seen was too nightmarish to be real. But if I did not wish to be susceptible to the same influence that I suspected drove the original caretaker mad, I would have to be careful to spend as little time in proximity to the garden as possible, confining myself mostly to these sitter's quarters. That night, I had a dream in which I stood in the study and the pictures were much more vivid, each moving as if alive as I reached out to the rule sign and flipped it over. On the reverse were explanations for each of the heretofore inexplicable rules. Rule number one, never look at the gardener. The sight induces unbound terror and madness. Rule number two, enter doors only after knocking. Unknocked doors lead to the bone closet. Rule number three, the clocks need daily winding. Their chimes cast the veil. Rule number four, house staff and visitors must mask. The skinless man stalks the unmasked. There is no escaping the skinless man. I woke in a cold sweat and hurried to scribble what I had read before I could forget. It was only then that I noticed a hidden meaning embedded in the rules. A message designed, I was sure, by the same hand that painted all those bizarre images that had wormed their way into my dreams. The mansion's original caretaker spent a lifetime exposed to the maze's hallucinogenic effects, and perhaps that worked permanently into his brain, as I suspected it was beginning to work into mine. I took the first word of each rule and the punctuation, and put them together to decipher his warning. Never enter the house. Every rule wrong. Only run. Leave. Depart. Nor did his warning end there. He embedded one more secret. The secret of what he believed to be the true nature of this grand old mansion. If you want to know what it is, just remove the numbers and read the first letter of each line. Never look at the gardener. Enter doors only after knocking. The clocks need daily winding. House staff and visitors must mask. Every statue in the long hall must be completely covered. Rule 3 repeats for the grandfather clock. Set again before leaving. Wrong deliveries occur daily, only except on the second attempt, not the first or third. Run the package to the center of the hedge maze. Leave the maze within five minutes. Depart Kogor Court for any video calls. Video and photography are strictly prohibited. I'm halfway through my three-week stint as a house sitter at Kilgore Court an allegedly haunted estate where I'm required to follow strict rules. There is also a hidden rule in the list when the first words of each line are strung together, along with a secret word in the first letters. Netherworld. 
When I spoke with my sister earlier this week about my new job, she laughed. Oh my gosh, isn't there a small part of you that wants to break a rule? You know, just to see what would happen. No. You haven't changed a bit, Sam. Can I come and see this haunted house that you're in? My twin sister, Alina, is the opposite to me in every respect. She has friends and I have none. She worked through college and bought a house. I still live with our parents. I consider her brash, loud, and reckless. She considers me a socially impaired loser, with a stick the size of a baseball bat up his butt. Her words. Given my difficulties with socialization and therefore employment, I am sure it was a surprise for her to hear that I had acquired this job. My employer is endlessly complimentary. By this, I meant Pim Perrin. I had not met Mr. Kilgore. My tasks are minimal, and my pay is three times hers. She actually accused me of making it all up, which made me frown. I do not lie. That's not true, you have lied, she said over the video call. I haven't lied since we were eight years old. Yeah, pretty sure I caught you jerking once and you lied that you were reading the article. Jesus Christ, Al. My sister is the only person who has ever been able to wind me up. Look behind me, does this look like our parents' house? She was still giggling at having gotten me all wound up. I mean, it could be a background. It looks like you just plucked it off the internet. I brought the phone through the sitter's suite, lingering on the embroidered furniture, the balcony, and the brocade curtains. Holy crap, that's your office? Swanky. Hey, can I come visit? No. I turned the camera back toward me. Oh, come on. The truth is, I did want to give her permission to visit. Many things around this place did not make sense, and I would have welcomed another pair of eyes and opinions than my own. I also had a more self-serving reason. I was sick of my twin sister regarding me as a failure, and would have felt validating to show her that, whatever my deficits and charm, I could succeed in this position. Where social interactions were unnecessary, and my exacting nature was useful regarding the rules. I wanted her to realize that I was not the utter failure that she thinks I am. That is why I eventually said, Yes. But even after I made her swear to follow all the rules, I knew that I was making a mistake. My twin sister is exactly the wrong sort of person to bring to Kilgore Court. Holy crap! Alina whirled, snapping pictures as we ascended the front steps to the grand double doors. I made a calculated grab and snatched her phone, tucking it into my back pocket despite her squawks. Rule 8, no video or photography. I'll give it back after the tour. Wait here. What? Why am I? Oh, right. She chuckled as I put on my magpie mask and ducked inside. Rule number one. She sang mockingly from behind the doors as I grabbed a vividly colored parrot mask from the foyer cloakroom. Rule four, I corrected, returning to hand her the mask. 
Why am I a parrot? Because you talk too much. We finished at the same time. Jinx, she added lightly strapping on the mask. How do I look, Mr. Magpie? Looks were irrelevant. The point of the mask was compliance with rule number four. Elena blew a raspberry when I told her this, and instead of following me up to the sitter's quarters, she insisted on touring the mansion first. I had no choice but to follow. Otherwise, she would have opened doors without knocking. Rule number two. Obviously, she could not be allowed anywhere near the garden or the long hall, and I abbreviated our tour to a few of the grandest rooms, including the conservatory, the library, the lounge, the ballroom, and all the clue boardrooms, as she put it. When we neared the kitchen, the odor of the corpse blossoms, which was ever-present throughout the drafty house, became eye-wateringly strong. Upon knocking and opening the kitchen door, the stench of rot made me gag. Ugh! exclaimed Alina, clapping a hand to her nose. Bro, it smells like they left a whole pig to rot. What is that stink? I don't know. The sitter's quarters had its own kitchen, and there were no tasks to bring me regularly to this wing of the house. Garlic braids hung from the ceiling and some bread sat going stale in a basket, but mostly the kitchen was bare. After a cursory look through the cupboards turned up nothing, I turned to leave. I was on my way out when I heard her say four words that sent a chill up my spine. Where does this lead? I looked back. She had opened the cellar door, only she had a knocked. The cellar, I said mechanically, my mind slow to catch up. I think the smell's coming from down there. L, don't. Breaking out of my trance, I lunged and caught her wrist so hard that she yelped. What? Don't, don't go down there. I stared past her. I had never been down to the cellar before, but Pym had showed it to me the first day. Brick walls descending to racks of wine and some stored root vegetables. This, this was not the same stairwell. For one thing, there was no light switch on the wall, and the walls were not brick, but dank and glistening stone, as were the stairs, descending into a square of blackness, so thick that it was impossible to make out anything down there except the stench, the overpowering, eye-watering, stomach-churning stench. Yeah, I wasn't planning on going down there, Alina said, shoving past me. She playfully tried to shut the door on me and my heart slammed into my ribs. I rammed through her to get out. I shut the door behind us as Alina barked at me. Ow, you jerk. Stop messing around, I hissed. God, you are so uptight. You promised to follow the rules. We bickered all the way back to the sitter's quarters where she hurled off the parrot mask with a squawk of frustration and collapsed onto the fainting couch. I'm not wearing that itchy thing again. God, stuff your stupid rules. This was as good a segue as any, so I sat down opposite of her and said, I want to talk to you about them actually, to, to consult you. Consult me, she perked up. 
on these rules and rumors of the mansion being haunted. As she leaned in, I pointed to the picture frames on the walls, explaining how they had all been drawn by the previous caretaker, who also penned the sitter's rules, in which he embedded a secret warning. I ran my finger down the list, showing how it could read, Netherworld, and also if you strung together the first word of each line it read, Never enter the house, every rule wrong, only run, leave, depart. Alina looked vaguely impressed, and dude was committed to his creepy legacy. That's not even half of it. He claims he disfigured his own face as punishment for breaking a rule. He was diagnosed with dementia. He kept a journal full of ravings, in which he expounded on his reasons for these specific rules. I showed her a paper that I had copied from his journal. Rule number one, never look at the gardener. The sight induces unbound terror and madness. Rule number two, enter doors only after knocking. Unknocked doors lead to the bone closet. Rule number three, the clocks need daily winding. The chimes cast the veil. Rule number four, house staff and visitors must mask. The skinless man stalks the unmasked. There's no escaping the skinless man. Rule number five, every statue in the long hall must be completely covered. The unshrouded seek to swap places. Rule number six, rule three repeats for the grandfather clock. Set again before leaving, the clock sets time. Rule number seven, wrong deliveries occur daily. The wrong deliveries are collectors. Only accept on the second attempt, not the first or third. The master awaits his meal. Run the package to the center of the hedge maze. The center is the rift. Leave the maze within five minutes. Linger and the veil will lift from your eyes. Rule number eight. Depart Kilgore Court for any video calls. Video and photography are strictly prohibited. The camera does not lie. I tapped my fingers nervously while my sister read. I had already agonized over these rules to the point of questioning my own sanity. The original caretaker also wrote about parties with demons, curses that he had cast over his enemies, corpses that he dragged into the garden to rot, and how he carried a syringe with him at all times until the day that he cut his own face off. Records from the last century detailing his increasing hysteria indicated that I should take his writings with a grain of salt. Rantings of a sick mind in an age when medical care was rare. It was only tradition that the rules were handed down and still followed today, as was his name. Pim Perrin, passed to every caretaker. Tradition and likely marketing, given what the current Pim had told me about, how the staff play up the hauntings for credulous guests by fiddling with the electricity or jiggling tables. All just superstition and stories. Except, I had dreamed about the rules and his explanation for them. I had seen things that I couldn't explain. I needed my sister to provide some insight to be the grounding to all the electrifying strangeness that I had experienced, or to tell me if it was all real. Still, I was not prepared for her reaction. 
She burst into peals of laughter. Oh, don't tell me, she said fighting for breath. Don't tell me you believe this nonsense. My face grew warm. I, oh Sam, little brother. Much to my chagrin, she hugged me, cradling my head against her life like a small child. I shoved her back and she laughed. Sweetie, you take everything so literally. L. Oh, did this Pim guy talk in a spooky voice when he told you about this stuff? Ooh, Sam, I'm the caretaker of this haunted house. I must issue you a warning. She managed to snatch her phone from my pocket when hugging me and spun around snapping pictures. She leaned in to show me. Look, it's all perfectly normal. The camera doesn't lie, huh? The rules don't apply in the sitter's quarters. Oh, so it's only out there that's haunted. She raised her eyebrows. Her challenge sent the hairs on the back of my neck prickling, and a terrible feeling churned in my gut as she asked. So if I take a photo out there, I'll see ghosts. I don't. You don't know. You mean you haven't taken any? She stopped, her eyes lighting up. You haven't. Oh my god, Sam, you're so precious. You didn't want to break the rules. Rule 8. Rule 8, rule 8, no pictures. Ah, oh, poor Sam, it's okay. Your sis is here now. I can break some of those big bad rules for you. L, I didn't ask you here to break the rules. Didn't I, though? A small part of me wondered. I could feel my grasp on the situation slipping away, and I was begging her to put on her mask when a loud, ominous tolling shattered the silence, and both of us jumped. The doorbell. Holy crap, that's loud. Is that the doorbell? She asked. Ignore it. I sat down on my desk, anxiety tying my intestines into knots with each ringing peal, a clanging like church bells. My sister looked at the CCTV. There's somebody at the door, a woman in a delivery uniform, and she's got a package. I said ignore it. Why are you? She glanced at the rules and her lips quirked. I frowned as she stood up. L? Chillax, Sam, I am. She smiled impishly as she darted to the door. I just want to see. L. But she was already gone, with no mask, trotting down the stairs while I rushed to fasten on my mask. She yanked open the heavy front door just as I had caught up, the parrot mask dangling uselessly from my fingers as the delivery woman handed her a machine for electronic signature. My sister offered the pen to me and I shook my head, aghast. Shrugging, Alina signed. The driver handed her a white box. Huh. Alina shook the box as the delivery van pulled away. It's empty. Oh, that churning in the pit of my stomach. You're gonna be pissed if I open it. She cocked her head. She had broken rules 2, 4, and now 7. Everything was happening too fast. It was like when we were children and she would sneak out and shatter all of our parents' rules and warn me not to tattle. I always did. She always called me a snitch and a narc. But just like back then, 
I had to admit to a prickle of curiosity as she flouted authority. Perhaps my sister was right. Perhaps the first caretaker had simply been mad, and I was acting out as whimsy with no better reason than that it was a tradition that I had been ordered to obey. But the box was empty. Inside the lid was written, Leave for the face collector. I made a small, terrified sound in the back of my throat. Alina cackled, leaning in to snap a selfie of us. Smile, bro, she giggled, spinning away from me as if she expected me to try to snatch her phone. And when I didn't, she said, Uh-oh, now I've gone and done it. I broke Sam. Bro, you okay? Or was that one too many rules? I gotta admit, though, that last one was creepy. That's going on Insta. She laughed and tapped her fingers across her phone screen, and then she gasped. Whoa, Sam. Huh, I said, her exclamation snapping me out of my catatonia. Dude, it's gotta be a filter or something. In the photo behind her beaming face and my feathered mask, the arched ceiling rose cracked and crumbling, the pillars streaked with grime. It was like one of those pictures of abandoned places that you see viral online. All former grandeur descended into rot and decay. The hedge maze has, has hallucinogenic flora, I murmured. Maybe we're imagining it. Yo, wouldn't hallucinogenic plants be like hugely illegal? And even if they do grow those, wouldn't you have to make a tea or edible out of them and ingest them or something? She was right, of course. I had never probed too deeply. I just accepted Pim's explanation. But perhaps I should have challenged the nonsensical rationalizations he gave out for the various rules. Only I was never very good at confrontation. It was a facet of my twin sister that I had always admired. How she could just flout any rule. But right now as she continued taking pictures and swiping through images of the antique furniture covered in detritus and mold, I just wanted her to stop and for once heed the posted placard in these sitters' quarters because the feeling that something terrible was about to happen all but choked me. I think you should leave, I said and I seized her arm. Oh stop, are you kidding me? Sam, this is so cool, they must have the filter set automatically to the Wi-Fi or something. There is no Wi-Fi. But my parents couldn't rein her in, much less her little brother, younger than her by six minutes, an age difference that she never let me forget. She shook off my grip and I realized it would either be a knockdown, drag-out fight, or I would have to let her work it out of her system. Since she had already swatted my mask askew, I opted for the latter, trailing behind her like a beleaguered Hansel, hauled by the heedless Gretel straight into the witch's house. There was never any stopping Alina. She wandered through the grand rooms, gaping at the ruinous state that the camera showed her. I remember little about it now, only that I was like a piece of broken clockwork stricken by the certainty that we were careening toward our doom. I felt more and more sure that the splendor around me had always been an illusion, that the former caretaker's drawings weren't just twisted visions of madness, 
but glimpses of the reality beneath the veil. And the house was drafty and smelled of rot not because the windows were old and poorly insulated, but because there were no windows at all, only cracked glass and splinters. And I had for days been winding the clocks in a decaying and empty house. Oh, Sam, look at the chandeliers. Her exclamation as she showed me the ghostly flames made me think about the long hall, about the statues under the dust covers. What would we see if she took a picture of them? That thought startled me enough to break me out of my stupor and steer her away from that wing. We found ourselves instead approaching the kitchen. Suddenly, I remembered the smell. A terrible suspicion lit inside me. I wandered dreamlike past my sister into the kitchen door. I was barely aware of her griping about the stench as I knocked and entered, snapping pictures of the room while holding my nose, with a mental twinge at rule number eight, knocking and opening the cellar and snapping pictures of that too, and then opening the images on my phone, flicking through them until my breath caught. The driver. A week after meeting the gardener, his body was bloating with putrefaction, the skin discolored in patches, but I still recognized him mostly by his gaping sockets, eyes gouged out by his own keys. His body lay at the bottom of these cellar steps, and despite the cooler temperature in there, it looked like parts of him were beginning to ooze. For the regular staff to handle when they get back, came to me almost in Pim's dry voice. What the? I whirled. Ella, don't. I began not wanting her to glimpse the horror on my screen, but that wasn't what she was looking at. Her eyes were riveted to a selfie that she had taken. In the image, she was squinting against the stench, hand clapped around her nose amidst dusty cabinets and cobwebs. But just behind her, the pantry door was ajar and through the gap, a single milky white eye was visible. When she swiped to the next selfie, bony fingers curled around the edge of the door and the gap had widened slightly. L, I reached for her hand. What is it, Sam? She pinched the screen and zoomed in on the fingers, rotted away so the muscle and bone were visible. The skin this man stalks the unmasked. I tugged her arm hard. Let's get out of. The pantry door slammed open. Both of us screeched, jumping and staring at the pantry. My quick-thinking sister snapped another photo. A clear figure stepped towards us from out of the pantry. He was so much more terrifying than in the original caretaker's artwork. Framed by warped and broken cupboards and stepping barefoot across rotted filth, the man in the photo was so badly decayed that most of the skin had sloughed off, flesh dangling from stitches like an old patchwork coat on hangers of bone. In his fingers, he held a needle and thread, the other hand extended towards the camera, towards us. In the split second that it took to look at that photo, something bumped the table. I shoved Alina behind me. Go, go! Even as she ran, the ominous warning in the caretaker's journal came to me. There is no escaping the skinless man. I doubted grabbing a mask from the cloakroom would be enough now, 
I had to get her off the estate grounds. But the squeak of the cellar door behind me brought my head whipping around. Alina gasped at something that I couldn't see down in the cellar's depths. She hadn't knocked. No, I cried, shut it. But my face struck the floor. The breath slammed out of me, a weight on my back pinning me down. Sam, she shrieked. As the weight lifted, Alina snatched a knife from the rack and took a step forward, only to stop, the knife clattering to the floor right next to my head. Her toes hovered an inch off the floor in front of my face, kicking the air and as I lifted my gaze, I saw that she was levitating. No, was lifted by some invisible hand, her throat constricted under some force that was squeezing tight. I snatched up the knife, slashing at the air behind her legs. The blade thunked. For a split second, I saw its edge embedded in the rotted black bone of an ankle, and then the foot kicked me with enough force to knock me through the open cellar door, plunging down, down into the dark. My head struck something cold. Everything spun and went black. I'm not sure how much later it was that I woke, gasping and pushed myself up from the watery murk in which I found myself. A shallow pool, more viscous than water. It felt like that I had tumbled straight into the worst fears of childhood, deep into the closet with its nightmare monsters. Only there was nothing dreamlike about the stench of this place. Instinct adrenaline took over. I did not think of Alina. I did not think of the rules that we had broken, or the sheer impossibility of everything we had witnessed in the past hours. I didn't think of anything. Sam Miller had shut down and the only operating system was a primal instinct with only one goal. Escape the dark. My hands fumbled for my phone, but it was gone, lost in the wet and slick. My fingers groped the walls. Down here, they were ribbed and rigid. Bone flashed through my head. Walls constructed of bone. There was no light at all. No, there were two luminescent pinpricks far in the distance. The lights flickered. No, they blinked. But not lights. Eyes. Something was down here in the bone closet. I went stock still, my lizard brain guiding my every direction as a faint clacking snapping sound shattered the silence. The sound of gristle and meat of chewing. The eyes lowered and briefly winked out, followed by more crunching. I held my breath, suddenly terrified to so much as inhale. The sound of my own heart was a sledgehammer. Vague fears fluttered to my consciousness. Could the thing hear my heartbeat, slamming like a frenzied bird against the cage of my ribs? Fighting rising panic as the nightmarish reality of my situation settled in, I inched backward, feeling for the stairs. My fingers bumped a stone and I traced it up. A step. I was right on the verge of the steps. I had no idea if there was any way of opening the door from the side. The rules offered me no clues. There wasn't even an outline of light above me. And how could the door to the bone closet open, given that I was in a room that did not exist unless somebody failed to knock? 
Hysteria rose and I gave a little giggle. The pinpricks of light shot up. I shut up. The lights fixed on me. A few more thoughtful crunching sounds, swallowing. Something sloshed toward me. Oh, heck no. All caution forgotten, I scrambled up the steps. A horrible howling shriek split the air in great splashing leaps. I slammed against stone. Stone. There was no door, only stone. A sob caught in my throat and I pounded on the solid rock, gasping. No, 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 no. And then a sharp and searing pain as something clamped my leg. I screamed, scrabbling at the stairs. Light flooded down like the heavens parting as a door suddenly opened. The thing released my leg, retreating with a shriek into the darkness. A liver-spotted hand grabbed my arm, hauling me up the stairs and out into the foyer. I had fallen in through the cellar. But that apparently didn't matter for the bone closet, which was everywhere and nowhere. Pim closed the cloakroom door. As soon as I was on my feet, he strode away, saying, I was dreading the day this would happen, the day a mistake would be made. That thing, that thing. I gasped, suddenly remembering. Alina, my sister, what happened to my... You saw what happened to her. She broke rule four and the skinless man took her. No, this can't be real. None of this can be real. What is wrong with this house? I shrieked, grabbing his arm. Let go of me, Sam. I heard his scowl beneath the faded magpie mask. The stern disapproval at my hysteria. I have to deliver the package to the maze. You missed the second delivery, but luckily for us, I caught it. It still has to be brought into the maze. He disengaged himself from me with surprising strength. Three raps on the door and he was gone, leaving me to sink to my knees, lost in this nightmare that could not possibly be real. My brain was snapping and splintering. A machine with the cogs wound too tight, cracking around the sheer madness of this house. And then I was wailing, sobbing, shrieking uncontrollably with my mind gone. By the time that Pim returned from his delivery, I had somewhat come back to myself and though I was still in shock, my thoughts were calm and ordered. Everything made a perfect, terrible sense now in my mind. I stood up from where I had been waiting by the staircase and faced him. Tell me the truth, I said. You lied to me about the driver. You told me that he drove away. Pim's head cocked, evaluating me behind the feathered mask. Yes, I lied. The gardener killed him. Not exactly. You saw yourself. The driver did it to himself. Why? He shrugged as if annoyed. You know the answer, because the driver looked at him. Sam, you've seen the reality of the house. You wind the clocks each day because the chimes cast a veil that makes the house appear pristine. The reason you must not stay in the maze longer than five minutes is because the unholy forces are strongest at the center, and the veil would lift if you stayed too long. All of this is in the original caretaker's journal, which I know you've read because I left it for you. What happens to me if the veil lives? You'll see the real Kilgore Court. The chimes veil the whole house except for the gardener. When people look at something that doesn't belong in this world, 
He trailed off and then added, But yes, I lied. I drove his van away and told you that you were being affected by the flora. My fists clenched. There's no hallucinogenic flora in the maze. No, Sam. And if I looked at the gardener, would I also go insane? Yes, but not you. No, I'm not immune, said Pam, sounding surprised. I'm the same as you. But you've worked here for... Over a century, he added. Time does not pass the same in the house as out in the world. How have you not died? I followed the rules, he said dryly. Something you and I both excel at. Now, he extended his hand towards the door. It's time for you to go, Sam Miller. I'm truly sorry for your sister. It is sincerely the greatest regret of my life. But I promise you, if you obey the rules, you'll come out of today just fine. And it really is a cushy job for misfits like us, who don't fit into the world. Screw you, Pim, I snapped. If you think I would ever come back here... He shrugged as I shouldered past him to the front entrance, heedlessly bumping the umbrella stand on my way out, behind which I noticed the box my sister had left, the last of his precious rules that she had broken. Spitefully, I kicked it out from behind the stand toward him. Pim had apparently not noticed the box until that moment, because he went very still as it tumbled to his feet. His head lowered towards it, with the feathered mask, I could see nothing of his face, but something in his posture, and the way his fingers curled into claws of surprise showed me his dismay. And then he said hoarsely, Who answered at the first delivery? I found the lid also dumped in the umbrella stand and tossed it over to him. A surprise for you, Pim. A gift from my dead twin. Alina. I told him. His hands trembled as he lifted the small box, picked up the lid, and read the words inside. For the face collector. A small sound came from the back of his throat. What happens when you break rule number seven? I wondered. You never told me about the first and third deliveries. Oh, thank God it was the first. Finally, Pam exhaled. The first collection is faces. The third is souls, and then his magpie mask turned toward me. I'm afraid the cost is exactly what it sounds like. Guess you'd better pay it then. I thought of the first caretaker's disfigured face in the photo. It seems like a trend among caretakers. Normally, the person who answers the delivery pays the price. Pim dropped the box and reached into his coat, withdrawing a syringe from an inner pocket. Through the magpie mask, his eyes on me were cold. But since your sister has already been taken, the debt falls to her next of kin. I inched further out the door. We were similar in stature, but I had the advantage of youth and vitality. If I sprinted, I was certain that I could outrun him. Though, when I thought of the ease with which he had lifted me out of the bone closet, I wondered if he wasn't much stronger and quicker than he appeared. But then he aimed at the point of the syringe at his own aging flash under the mask and said dryly, Don't think I'm sparing you. I'm really not. And to my shock, he injected himself. 
and then he slid a knife from somewhere in his sleeve. Did he always carry one? And he slid it beneath his mask and into his own skin. The sound he made, grunting as he sliced, was horrible. It didn't come away all at once either, but in pieces. He dropped his skin into the box. I ran, God help me, I ran, and left that madman cutting off his own face. I hurtled down those steps, leaving my laptop and all my belongings upstairs. I have never flown faster in my life than I did down that curving drive, until I was at the wrought iron gates. They were locked, but I squeezed through the gaps beneath the chain, and I got the heck out of Kilgore Court. I pelted downhill on that bright, ordinary, beautiful street. The fresh scents of recent rain and spring flowers perfumed the air as I scampered past the gardens of the nearby Victorian houses. I raced all the way down to the bus stop, realizing only as I got to the bottom of the hill that, without my wallet, I had no way to pay. But it did not matter. Confused, I tilted my head. This was the same spot where I had stepped off and gotten onto the bus every day since more than a week ago when I had first started this job. But there was no bus stop post. I snatched off my magpie mask, panting and out of breath, peered up at the cobblestone street. Cobblestone, not asphalt. The only passerby were men in suits much like Pim's, and women in flowing skirts and wearing enormous hats. A woman pushed a baby carriage that would not have been out of place in a sepia photograph from the early 1900s. I won't belabor the point. I had skipped rule number six, setting the grandfather clock to the right time. I could now guess the consequences of that rule. Though I spent the better part of the afternoon wandering around, my brain refusing to accept the evidence of the world around me, where I saw as many horses and carriages as automobiles. It was dark by the time that I ascended the driveway back to Kilgore Court. Looming at the crown of the hill, the house was brightly lit, warm with a crowd of people laughing and moving through the garden beyond. Some sort of dinner party. You would never know the place was haunted. When I rang the bell, the door was answered by a man that I recognized immediately by his hulking frame, and I wondered if his face beneath the mask was disfigured yet. And who are you, sir? The original caretaker demanded, looking me up and down with a distaste. I had been about to introduce myself as Sam Miller and plead, no beg for him to set the grandfather clock to send me back to my own time, but something clicked in my mind as he spoke. Because you see, I gazed beyond him to the vast entrance hall in all its glory. Dozens of people in furs and fancy coats, masked and laughing and joking in a masquerade party, all utterly unaware of the unholy ground on which they were standing. And I knew that even if I were to travel back through time and drag the authorities into the house, they would find no trace of my sister. The chimes would mask everything. I had been allowed a glimpse beyond the veil only because I had played the role of the sitter. But to the rest of the world, it was a mad, ludicrous story. One that I would eventually chronicle in my notebooks, inked meticulously by hand, because I had left my laptop back in 2023. A laptop that years in the future, I would use to finally complete this account 
following the handwritten notes from my youth. But at the time, I knew only that even if I could convince him to wind the clock forward, who would ever believe me? Me, Sam Miller, an unsocial, unemployed misfit with no friends or acquaintances, still living in his parents' basement. The caretaker leaned down toward me. He had noticed the mask under my arm. I slid it onto my face and then stood straight and said, I am Pim Perrin, the new caretaker. The original caretaker hesitated, staring for a long while, and then he stepped back, opening the door wide for me. For just a moment, I saw a double image, the warm, bright hall filled with gas mingling below the towering columns, and a second image, much darker and not quite as many windows broken yet, but with the eyes of unspeakable things peering outward, one of which would doubtless be my new master, whom I had yet to formally meet. It was to these things I directed my attention as I bowed and entered Kilgore Court. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. My neighbor drew some weird chalk symbols on the back of my bedroom door. Written by Beardify. One Saturday morning when I was two years old, I woke up hungrier than I had ever been. Down the hall, I could hear my parents snoring off their hangover. They wouldn't be up until past noon at least. I vaguely remember climbing over my half-collapsed baby gate and waddling down the hallway to the kitchen. I twisted the little black knobs on the stove just like my parents did, but no scrambled eggs appeared. Instead, the stove made a mean hissing noise in the kitchen filled with a nasty smell that I didn't like at all. The smell kept getting worse and worse and I had a feeling that I would get into the worst trouble of my life if my parents found out. I went back to my room to play with my blocks, hoping that the problem would just magically go away. Five minutes later, there was a loud knock on the door. My parents grumbled all those four-letter words that they had told me never to say. And then I heard my mother sniffing. She said the house smelled like gas, whatever that meant. My father staggered out of the bedroom with his jeans and shirt half on, and yelped when he made it to the kitchen. Windows and doors flew open. I crept downstairs to see what was going on. 
How'd you know? My father said breathlessly to the shadowy figure on our front doorstep. No. The kindly female voice sounded confused. No what? I'm Eliza Mortimer from the end of the block. I was just dropping off these cookies that I baked to welcome you to the neighborhood. Coincidence or not, Eliza Mortimer had saved all of our lives. And not for the last time. Two years later came the first of many plate-shattering, furniture-breaking, screaming matches between my parents. I was crouched down in the closet with my hands pressed over my ears, but the sharp knock sounded as loud as somebody rapping on my own skull. I tiptoed out of hiding and I opened the door. Hello, young man. I'm Eliza Mortimer from the end of the block. I'm in a bit of a pickle and I could use your help. The woman on the doorstep was short and stocky, with frizzy brown hair, bright green eyes and round framed glasses. She wore an old-fashioned black dress with a wide belt and stood with one hand on her hip. In the other, she held a small red notebook. I had never seen her before, but for some reason, I knew her voice. Okay, I smiled. Behind me, the battle had stopped. I felt my father's damp hand on my shoulder. He had been washing the blood off his knuckles. If it isn't our favorite neighbor, he sneered. What can we do for ya? Well, I started a new recipe before I noticed that I was all out of sugar. Could I borrow a few cups? My father sighed and nodded. Sugar. He grumbled as I followed him into the broken battlefield of our kitchen. Who the heck borrows sugar at 10 p.m. on a work night? My father shoved a wrinkled bag of rock-hard sugar into my hand. Tell her she can keep it. Oh, this ought to be more than enough. Give your parents my thanks, Ethan. As I waved goodbye, it occurred to me that I had never told our odd neighbor my name. Miss Mortimer came by a lot over the next five years, always with a good excuse. A missing cat, duct tape for her garden hose. One time, she even wanted help with a crossword puzzle. She didn't always arrive in time to stop my parents from getting violent, but she always showed up before anybody got seriously hurt. I didn't know how she did what she did, but by the time that I was seven years old, I loved her for it. I wanted to spend more time with her, but my parents wouldn't hear of it. Nothing good can come of a kid hanging around strangers, my father said darkly. Although, as I would soon learn, he had been spending quite a lot of time around strangers himself. My mother's response to discovering his extramarital affair was downing a cocktail of pills with a vodka martini. No matter how much I shook her, she wouldn't wake. And if Miss Mortimer hadn't just happened to have been out for a walk when I ran crying into the street, she probably wouldn't have survived. With my mother in the hospital and my father off of this mistress, it was Miss Mortimer who took care of me. I wish you could stay here forever, I told her that night, as I sat in bed sipping her hot soup, instead of them. That would be lovely, dear, 
Miss Mortimer replied. But I can't. Perhaps, though, there's a way that we can keep in touch. Would you like that? Miss Mortimer walked over to the inside of my bedroom door, bent down and drew a small chalk circle with a series of odd symbols around it. White marks that looked like letters but weren't. She gently pushed the door closed. Now, Miss Mortimer grinned mischievously. Put your hand inside that circle and open the door at the same time. I did as I was told. Instead of the drab hallway that I was used to, my bedroom door suddenly opened to a cozy room filled with bookshelves, well-cared-for plants and an enormous antique desk lit by a single brass lamp. I tried again several times, always with the same result. Then when I removed my hand from the circle and opened the door, the hallway was back. That room you saw as my study, in my house at the end of the street. Miss Mortimer smiled. Now if you ever need anything or even just to talk, you know where to find me. But how? I couldn't even say it. See these symbols around the circle? You must never remove or change them in any way. If one should happen to get smudged, let me know right away. And do not use the circle until I fix it, no matter what. Understand? I nodded. I thought I did. Good. Now get some sleep. Your mother and father will be home in the morning, and they'll need all the help that you can give them. Miss Mortimer wasn't wrong. Both my parents eventually came home, but they refused to speak to each other or take care of the house. Dirty dishes and overflowing trash bags piled up like monuments to the disgust that they felt for each other. They mostly ignored me. I was just another bitter reminder of the lives that they could have had. And honestly, that suited me just fine. I stayed out of the house as much as possible, reading in the local library, playing in the cul-de-sac with other neighborhood kids until the streetlights came on, and visiting Miss Mortimer. For the next two years, any time I had a question or needed to talk to an adult, I just put my hand on the strange circle and stepped into Miss Mortimer's study. She was always ready to feed me something delicious, listen to my problems, or even just give me a clean space to draw. As far as I was concerned, stretching out on her big Turkish carpet with my sketch pad and a cup of tea was the best feeling in the world. With my trusty crayon in hand, I tried to recreate the unsettling images that I found in Miss Mortimer's old books. Women with mouths in the back of their heads, men transforming into hyenas, children with a single eye in the middle of their foreheads. While I talked and sketched, Miss Mortimer would stir the black cast iron pot that was always burbling on her hot plate or take notes in her little red notebook. The cozy little room was my home away from home, the one place that I felt safe, until suddenly it wasn't. Just like on most afternoons, I had tossed off my backpack and opened my bedroom door with one hand in Miss Mortimer's chalk circle, eager to tell her about my day, but the study was empty. The little brass lamp was turned off, 
The hot plate was cold, and Miss Mortimer's favorite teapot lay shattered on the Turkish carpet. Something terrible had happened and I could feel it. Before I could investigate further, however, I glanced through the open door behind me and saw a sight that frightened me more than any of the monsters in Miss Mortimer's old books. My mother was rooting around in my bedroom. Where'd you come from? She slurred when I appeared suddenly behind the door. What are you hiding back there? I could smell the booze on her breath from three feet away. My eyes darted to Miss Mortimer's circle, betraying me. To my horror, my mother picked up a pair of gym shorts from the floor and began to wipe the chalky symbols away. It's just not enough that I bust my butt every day to pay for this stupid house, is it? Now you gotta go and draw all over it. Ungrateful, that's what you are. Just like your deadbeat father. Stop! I shouted, but I couldn't push past her in time. My path to Miss Mortimer's study had been completely wiped away. Don't you dare talk back to me, mister. Now listen. I ordered us a pizza and we're gonna have dinner. Like a normal family tonight, you understand. I've had enough of you skulking around up here. As she dragged me by the collar to the kitchen, all I could think about was the gloom in Miss Mortimer's study and the broken teapot on its rug. One way or another, I had to get back there. After my mother stomped off to bed alone and my father had passed out on the couch, I snuck into the oily darkness of the garage and fumbled around until I found a tin can full of sidewalk chalk. I carried it up to my bedroom and sat staring at the inside of my door, trying to recall Miss Mortimer's odd symbols. There had been one that looked like a tree with no leaves, two that were more like crow's footprints, a fourth with the appearance of a hard stab to through with a spear. The final two were the hardest to draw. Just thinking about them made my head hurt. But ten minutes later, I was pretty satisfied with the circle that I had redrawn on my door. It's true, it wasn't perfect, but I had to try something, didn't I? I took a deep breath, put my hand in the circle that I had drawn and pulled open the door. I wanted to cheer. I had done it. There was the study shrouded in darkness. The little brass lamp and the hot plate were both in place, but the shattered teapot was gone. I wondered if maybe Miss Mortimer had cleaned it up. That would mean that she was alright after all. I sprang through the door, sure that she would be proud of me for recreating her circle all by myself. My breath came out in a cloud of bluish white. It was cold in the study, and the floor felt wrong. Squishy almost, like it was made of human skin. I shuddered and reached out for the drawstring of the little brass lamp. When I turned it on, its bare bulb emitted an eerie greenish-blue glow. That wasn't all that was different either. I could now see that what I thought was a pot was actually more like a cauldron. Greasy bones and hair floated in a coagulated soup. Instead of Miss Mortimer's vibrant collection of plants, stuffed crows and animal skulls lined the bookshelves. Their uncanny glass eyes seemed to follow me as I tiptoed across the weird, squishy floor. 
I wasn't sure why I was being so careful. Hadn't I always been a welcome guest in Miss Mortimer's house? Most disturbingly of all, there was a breeze in the study, wheezing gusts of air that seemed to blow down from the ceiling. When I looked up, however, all I could see were layers and layers of something ragged hanging from the ceiling, a substance halfway between tattered cloth and spider webs. Like everything else in the dim light of the lamp, it had an awful bluish color that reminded me of dead things rotting underwater. I took a deep breath and kept walking forward. Up ahead, I saw an angular hallway that led to the rest of the house. I froze. The hallway hadn't been there before. I was sure of it. Was I even inside Miss Mortimer's study at all? I had been so excited to find her that I hadn't even considered the fact that I might now be somewhere very different. Somewhere very, very wrong. I could feel that weird, erratic breeze on the back of my neck. Smell it even. A cold reek like meat that had gone bad in the freezer. I spun and looked up for the second time, and I saw its source. It dragged its distended body toward me through the cobwebby rags with eight spider-like limbs, each capped by a horribly human hand. Its face was a nightmare version of Miss Mortimer's, lanky brown hair, pupilless white eyes, a jaw that was opening wide enough to swallow me whole. Run! The voice of the real Miss Mortimer boomed in my head. It came out of nowhere, but it snapped me out of my paralysis. As I sprinted across the spongy ground, those awful hands grazed my hair and tangled in my shirt. Fabric ripped as I squirmed to free and flung myself back through my bedroom door. I slammed it shut, but heard a hungry pounding from the other side. I hastily wiped away the less-than-perfect circle that I had drawn, and scrambled backwards, breathing hard. Now I understood why Miss Mortimer had warned me to never ever alter the symbols around the circle, but I wasn't ready to give up. I would just have to find a different way into the house at the end of the street. It was strange to think that in all the years that I had known Miss Mortimer, I had never once entered her house through the front door. I felt like a trespasser as I crossed her overgrown lawn, looking for an unlocked door, a half-open window, anything that would allow access to the quiet little house at the end of the street. Outwardly, there was no sign that anything was wrong. I could see Miss Mortimer's study through the big bay window, and while it was dark and quiet, I was relieved to see that there were no signs of any cobweb rags or glass-eyed animal skulls. Circling around the house, I finally found what I was looking for, a cat flap in the back door. It was much too small for an adult, but at nine years old, I was just scrawny enough to pull myself through. Who goes there? Miss Mortimer's voice boomed inside my head when I was halfway inside the cat flap. The air felt suddenly thicker, like invisible hands were pushing me back outside. I, it's just me, I cried out. Suddenly, I was pulled the rest of the way into the kitchen, but Miss Mortimer was nowhere in sight. I made a beeline for the half-open door to the study up ahead 
and breathed a sigh of relief when everything in the cozy room was exactly as I'd remembered. The plants on the bookshelves in need of watering, the shattered teapots on the floor. A hunch made me look on the other side of the door, where I found another chalk circle. My heart was in my throat when I put my hand inside of it and turned the doorknob, but it only led back to my bedroom. That gave me an idea. I grabbed Miss Mortimer's red notebook from where it lay on her desk, flipped to a blank page and copied down the symbols exactly. Now I had a way back to my room from anywhere else that I might need to go. At least, that's what I told myself. With the notebook and marker in hand, I searched the room for more clues to Miss Mortimer's disappearance. Several of those big old-fashioned books were missing, as well as the handmade broom that was usually hanging on the wall. Finally, I noticed it. A circle of symbols written in lipstick on the floor-to-ceiling mirror. Fascinated, I touched the center of the circle, and I felt the floor fall out from beneath my feet. I was falling, falling through an empty sky. A sky the color of mirrored light. I crashed into something hard and reflective. It felt like some sort of curved bridge, very, very high up. I crawled on my hands and knees to the unprotected edge and I looked down. Arches, fractals, other forms that should have been impossible. Insane silver architecture stretched as far as I could see. A strong wind whipped gray clouds through the weirdly reflective sky, threatening to push me over the ledge. I pulled back from the dizzying drop and wiped my sweating palms on my jeans to remind myself that I wasn't dreaming. One false step and I wouldn't have to worry about how I was going to make it home. I crawled toward the cathedral tall corridor at the end of the bridge. I didn't dare to stand up until I was well inside of it. At least there were walls here, even if they were sort of mirror-like. I held the marker in Miss Mortimer's notebook to my chest like a protective amulet, telling myself not to be afraid, that I was fine, and that I could escape from this eerie lifeless place at any time. Provided that I had copied those symbols exactly right, I had written them down in a hurry but I hadn't made any mistakes, at least I didn't think that I had. I realized that I was afraid to try and find out that I was wrong. I wanted to call out for Miss Mortimer, but the same instinct that had warned me to tiptoe in the spider thing's lair had warned me to be silent here. There was no sound but the wind wailing through the weird mirrorscape outside, and no movement but my own gloomy reflection. Or was there? I got the oddest feeling that when I stopped walking, my reflection didn't stop at exactly the same moment. Instead, it came ever so slightly closer. No, that was impossible. It was just a trick of the light caused by all the weird angles in this place. It had to be. The vast corridor was getting narrower and narrower. Soon my reflections were close enough to touch, if they were my reflections at all. I didn't remember my skin being so pale and colorless, or pulled so tightly across my skull, and my eyes weren't inky black either. I ran, my reflections ran too. 
They pressed their identical hands against the mirrored walls, their hunger deepening as they closed in around me. I felt sure that at any moment they would reach through and pull me into the endlessly reflected world on the other side. And then suddenly I was out. The narrow corridor opened into an enormous chamber strewn with wall-sized shards of an enormous broken mirror, and there in the center of it stood Miss Mortimer. It's you, she spun to face me, her old-fashioned black dress, wispy brown hair and bright green eyes were exactly as I'd remembered. How on earth did you find your way here? I could have cried for joy. I had found her, the one adult that I trusted who'd always been there for me. And then I glanced at the mirror shards around us. The creature reflected there was not Miss Mortimer. Its movements were the same as those of the woman reaching out to hug me, but that was where the similarity had ended. It was a starving, silver, faceless thing, with a mouthful of teeth as jagged as shattered glass. The horrible image grinned at me from every angle except one. I could see the real Miss Mortimer inside one of the shards, knocking desperately from inside it, trying to warn me. I slipped beneath the arms that reached out for me and ran to her. Miss Mortimer was pointing to something, something in my hand. Her red notebook. I pushed it up against Miss Mortimer's mirror and watched in amazement as it passed through to the other side. She flipped it open and recited some soundless words and stepped back through the looking glass. The shard that had been holding her shattered and the illusion dropped away from the ghastly thing in front of us. Miss Mortimer tossed me the notebook and I knew right away what she wanted me to do. I hid behind a shard that was twice my height and began frantically scribbling the circle of symbols that could lead us home. Behind me came flashes of light and heat cold and darkness. Miss Mortimer and the mirror monster fought each other with words that made my head ring and my nose bleed. I knew that they were speaking those strange symbols aloud, using them to bend reality somehow, what kids my age called magic. Meanwhile, I was busy trying to get us home. It's done, I screamed over my shoulder. With the last symbol drawn, I placed my hand in the circle and felt myself being pulled through. Suddenly, I was flying into my bedroom, crashing onto the floor, and Miss Mortimer was right behind me. She got to her feet and brushed off her dress, exhausted but alive. Looking around my shabby bedroom, it would have been hard to believe that the nightmarish place we had just returned from had ever existed at all. If it weren't for the blood trickling out of my nostrils and the mirror dust in my hair. What the heck's going on up there? My father roared over the din of the television. I just fell, Miss Mortimer replied in an uncannily perfect imitation of my voice. Everything's fine, idiot clumsy kid. I heard my mother mutter from the bathroom where she was getting ready for a cocktail party. Can't you do something about them? I begged Miss Mortimer. There are some things even I can't fix. She ruffled my hair and smiled sadly. Before I could stop her, she took the marker from my hand, opened her notebook, and copied a new set of symbols onto the back of my door. 
After what happened on the other side of the mirror, the house at the end of the street isn't safe any longer. I'm afraid I'm leaving tonight for good. What? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. After all I had gone through to put things back how they were, it wasn't fair. But you just got back. Why? It's a long story. Shall I tell you on the way? Miss Mortimer grinned. My jaw dropped. Oh, you don't have to come along, of course. If you do, you'll be leaving this place and everyone in it behind forever. Even if you were to see them again, it would be like they had never known you. Are you sure that you can live with that? Downstairs, I could hear the hum of my mother's hairdryer, my father crumpling a beer can and cursing when he missed his toss at the trash can. Miss Mortimer touched the circle of new symbols on the wall and looked back at me expectantly. Well, what do you say? I didn't say anything. I just grabbed Miss Mortimer's hand. And when she opened that door, I walked through with her to the other side. I had never been to the mirror realm before. Miss Mortimer was telling me, I didn't expect it to be so dangerous and I certainly didn't expect you to have to come in there after me. We were sitting on the porch of a cottage sipping lemonade. We had arrived the night before and after the Midwest suburbs that I was used to, it felt like being inside of a fairy tale. The white walls were crisscrossed with timber beams that were wider than I was. The flagstone floor was worn smooth by ages of use. A fine layer of dust covered everything. I got the feeling that this place didn't belong to Miss Mortimer, but I kept my mouth shut about that. I was much more concerned with why we were on the run in the first place. The idea that there were things out there that even Miss Mortimer was afraid of, it chilled my blood. To be honest, I never wanted to be involved with any of this. It was my best friend Matilda who wanted to be a wit. Miss Mortimer paused. Who wanted to walk through walls and things like that? I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. Can you believe that? So why didn't you? I asked, leaning forward in the creaky porch swing. The things that Matilda was studying kept getting darker and more dangerous. I wondered that she was getting in over her head, but she didn't listen. In the end, she wound up in a very bad place and couldn't find her way back. That's what I was doing on the other side of the mirror. I was trying to reach her. And are you going to keep trying? I think so. Although there really isn't much hope of finding her now. It's a shame. If only the situation was reversed, I'm sure Matilda would have found me a long time ago. These things never came as naturally to me as they did to her. Miss Mortimer smiled sadly and looked out over the overgrown garden, a jungle of hyacinths, morning glories in blackberry bushes. She clapped her hands together. Now, let's get this place cleaned up. It was odd how Miss Mortimer knew exactly where to find the record player and jazz album that she wanted to play in this abandoned cottage, but I kept my mouth shut about that too. We beat the dust out of the mattresses, scrubbed tiles, and chopped a path through the garden, while scenery played in the background. 
we didn't finish until late afternoon. I'm going to go into town to pick up some things that we need, but there's a creek at the bottom of the hill that you might enjoy exploring. She didn't have to tell me twice. As tired and sweaty as I was, the thought of splashing around in cool water sounded heavenly. I barely heard her warning about ticks and leeches as I ran through the tall grass toward the sound of water. The creek was shallow and fast and cold. It barely covered my ankles in most places, but I was able to find a pool beside a huge boulder that was deep enough to swim in. I rinsed my filthy clothes and left them to dry in the sun while I floated. Leaves rustled in the breeze overhead. My toes grazed against mossy rocks. I felt freer than I ever had in my life. Who are you? I sat up with a splash and nearly swallowed a lungful of water. A barefoot boy about my age stood staring at me with a confused expression on his face. Like a rock had just fallen out of the sky and hit him between the eyes. Where had he come from? I'm, a uh, Eddie. I made up the name on the spot. He had to think about it. Uh, Johan. He's lying. I spun with a start. A gap-toothed girl with rough-cut blonde pigtails was perched on a rock behind me, so close that I could almost touch her. So what if he's lying? I would rather hang out with a liar than have to stare at your ugly mug all day, Abigail. The boy who had spoken was hanging dangerously by his knees from a tree branch right above me. I couldn't believe it. I hadn't heard them all approaching. I'm Ted, by the way. The guy with the face is Johan. And the girl with no teeth is Abigail. I do so have teeth. Abigail shrieked. They're just growing in. Shh, keep your voice down. Johan looked around fearfully. Seconds later, a shadow swooped by overhead. It might have just been a bird, but if it was, it was the biggest bird that I had ever seen. The three of them stood still watching and didn't resume speaking until it was gone. I'm sorry if we startled you. Johan offered a hand to help me out of the water. We're just not used to seeing other kids down here. I took his hand and also my clothes, which I quickly put on in the shadows behind the boulder. There's a big waterfall further down the creek, Johan went on. You want to see? We had so much fun together that I had lost track of time. And before I knew it, the sun had set and the water had become icy cold. I gotta go, I stammered. See you guys around. Of course, Johan replied. The confused look had returned to his face. Where else would we be? One thing though, Ted piped up. Don't tell anyone you saw us down here. If you do, there could be trouble. Big trouble. Abigail nodded solemnly. I nodded. I understood that. There would have been heck to pay if my parents had caught me sneaking on the street to Miss Mortimer's or playing in some dirty creek. That's why when Miss Mortimer asked me how my day had been over dinner, I just told her that it was fine. The creek was pretty and that I had checked myself for ticks and I didn't find any. If the three odd children that I had met were dangerous or important in any way, I was sure that she would have told me. But did she even know about them? 
What was this place really? What did it mean to Miss Mortimer? No matter how many different ways I asked, I could never get a straight answer. Looking back, those late spring days all seemed to blend together. Miss Mortimer would give me lessons or chores in the morning. In the afternoon, I was ordered outside to play while she carried on her search for Matilda. I wasn't sure what exactly that entailed, but it was dangerous enough that she wanted me far away from the cottage while she was doing it. So I went down to the creek to play with my new friends. Johan, Abigail, and Ted welcomed me open-heartedly to their games and inside jokes. But as the days rolled by, I realized that there was a lot that they weren't telling me. Why, for example, did they always wear the same clothes? Why did they know so little about current events in the world outside the woods? And most importantly, what were they so afraid of? My new friends went out of their way to avoid certain areas of the forest in certain times of day. If they heard a loud sound in the underbrush or if a shadow passed over the sun, they abandoned their play and hid. Once, the three of them ducked behind a log to avoid a single deer. I thought they were being silly, until I noticed how strangely the deer was acting. It walked purposefully through the ferns, moving its head from side to side, just like a person searching for something. Its eyes, too, were blue and oddly human. I shivered. Do you think it saw us? Abigail whispered after it passed. Don't think so, Ted shrugged, but there was doubt in his voice. Uh, we probably ought to go back early today, though, just to be safe. Where do you guys live anyway? I asked. Over yonder. Johan gestured up the hill on the other side of the creek. There used to be the five of us, but Livy and Taylor got caught. What do you mean, caught? I groaned, sick of all the secrecy. What is going on around here? A raven flapped up from its perch on a nearby tree and we all jumped. We must be on our way, Johan frowned. Farewell. The three of them walked up the hill, shadowy figures backlit by a fiery orange and eerie sunset. The next afternoon, none of my friends were at the creek. I waited for almost an hour before heading up the hill in the rough direction that Johan had indicated. A sense of dread had tightened my chest, and I didn't notice how oddly quiet the woods had become. Finally, I burst out of the tree into a wide clearing. I looked around for a house, but all I found was an old cemetery. Had I gone the wrong way somehow? I climbed onto the flagstone wall to get my bearings, and as I did, I chanced to look down at one of these skewed, mossy gravestones. Johann Menefee, 1866-1874 It was a coincidence it had to be. But when I examined the other headstones, I found them all. Abigail Callahan, 1904-1910. Ted Powell, 1949-1956. Rest in peace. Psst, someone whispered. Ted was standing at the edge of the woods. I noticed with a chill that his bare feet left no footprints on the muddy ground. From his weird slaying to his pompadour haircut and funny-looking jeans, it all made sense. I backed away. You're... you're dead, I muttered. 
That'll matter now, he hissed. Oh, what? You think being dead makes you safe? We almost got caught and... Ted's eyes suddenly went wide with fear. Hide. A shadowy shape closed in behind him. I crouched, pressing myself against the graveyard wall. Through the gap in the flagstone, I watched the pale, long-fingered hands reach out of the gloom and wrap around Ted's neck. A horrible, rasping voice echoed through the silent woods. Gotcha. Through the crack in the graveyard wall, I could see clearly what had grabbed Ted. It was ageless and genderless, its skin as pale as the harvest moon. Whether the dark rags it was wrapped in were cloth, skins, or both, I couldn't say. Its proportions were stretched and wrong, but its dark blue eyes were human. Ted's legs kicked the air uselessly as the pale thing's jaw distended, lowering down past its chest. I held my friend just above the toothless black pit of its wide open mouth and swallowed him whole. I clamped a hand over my mouth to hold on a scream. The thing folded its freakishly long fingers over its distended belly and belched. A little bit of color, a little bit of life, seemed to flow back into its dead-looking skin. Does anything taste so wonderful as the soul of a frightened child? It asked the silent forest. Surely not. It paused, sniffing the air. Oh, there's a live one around here somewhere. To my horror, it began walking toward me, its rags whispering as they dragged through the grass. Ah, uh, there you are among the tombstones. Come on out, little one, there's no point in hiding now. My blood ran cold. How had it known where I was? Trembling, I got to my feet. If you come quietly, it'll be over before you know it. The thing's voice was insidious. It seemed to come from all directions, wriggling into my ears like a wicked worm. Otherwise, I might have to turn into a raven and peck out your eyes, or a wolf to slurp up your scrawny pink guts, or a deer to stomp you under my hooves. Would you like that? As it spoke, it transformed into the animals that it described and then into a hideous combination of all three. All the while, its dark blue eyes observed me, waiting to see what I would do. I suddenly realized that it wanted me to run. It wanted me to panic and flee the graveyard because it couldn't come inside itself. You can't come in here, I said more to myself than to the prowling thing beyond the wall. I don't know why, but you can't. The pale, almost human thing flew at me. It came as close as it could to get to the other side of the cemetery wall, but it didn't cross it. You can't stay in there forever, little one. Sooner or later, you'll have to drink and eat. You might as well get it over with. People are looking for me. They know where I am. I shouted and realized that it was half true. If I wasn't home by sunset, Miss Mortimer would notice that I was missing. She would come for me and then she would deal with this monster. 
That's fine, little one. Wonderful, in fact. I'll just eat them, too. But if you do as I ask, I won't hurt your friends. The thing pressed its face against the invisible barrier that separated us and opened its toothless maw impossibly wide. Its breath smelled like death. And doubt clouded my heart. Would Miss Mortimer really be able to defeat this thing, which could devour souls and transform into wild animals? I hoped she could, but I wasn't sure. The sun sank lower in the sky. The thing's shadow stretched behind it, long and vulture-like. I looked helplessly around for a way out of my predicament, but I saw none. Meanwhile, this thing kept on whispering. Its awful insinuations were getting harder and harder to ignore. The air cooled. The dusk bathed the hilltop cemetery in purple light. I was just beginning to wonder if Miss Mortimer was coming for me after all, when I heard her calling my name. The thing's mouth twisted into a nightmarish imitation of a smile. It waved its hand and spoke an impossible word. A ripple passed through the air. Miss Mortimer, I shouted. Hey, Miss Mortimer. Eliza, I'm up here. I yelled and jumped, but Miss Mortimer just kept walking through the woods, looking from side to side and calling my name. She can't see or hear us. The thing sneered. She can't even see the graveyard. To her, this is just a grassy hilltop. Don't you see, little one? You've only made things worse for yourself. The thing was lying, it had to be. I waved and screamed myself hoarse, but it didn't make any difference. Just as it had said, Miss Mortimer walked past the cemetery as though it wasn't even there. And then she was gone, just another shadow in the forest. The moon rose through the sky, but the pale thing didn't move. It just stared at me like a buzzard waiting for its prey to die. I sat down and cried. Maybe the thing was right, maybe I should just get it over with. A pebble flew out from the woods and clattered beside me, and then another... I glimpsed two moonlit familiar faces among the trees. Johan and Abigail. They could see me. The pale monstrosity in front of me noticed my excitement. It looked around suspiciously and I knew that I didn't have much time. Miss Mortimer. Miss Eliza Mortimer who lives in the cottage across the creek. Won't you come and help me? I know you would if you knew where I was. I called in a sing-song voice. Johan and Abigail looked at each other and nodded to me and slunk away into the forest. They had gotten the message. No one can help you, little one. No one. The thing rasped. I crossed my arms smugly. That's what you think. When Miss Mortimer hadn't appeared in a few hours, my confidence began to fade. Johan and Abigail had always been scared of adults and after seeing the horror that stalked through their woods, I could understand why. But what if they were afraid of Miss Mortimer too? What if they couldn't reach her for some reason? The eastern sky was growing brighter when I saw a second dark figure approaching through the woods. 
a torch made of funny-smelling herbs burnt in its hand. And Johann and Abigail walked behind it, leaving no trace of their passage. It was Miss Mortimer. In the cold morning light, her face was almost as pale as my captor's. She waved the smoking bundle and another ripple passed through the air. Her eyes went wide. She could see me. You came. I cried out, relieved. But Miss Mortimer wasn't smiling. Let him go, Matilda. She ordered the pale thing in front of me. It whipped around to face her, its dark blue eyes full of recognition and hate. Who are you to command me, Eliza? Like a bird of prey unfurling its wings, the monster called Matilda drew itself up to its full height. It was almost as twice as tall as Miss Mortimer, but she didn't back down. Don't tell me you think that little stick of sage will keep you safe. Matilda laughed and its laughter became a wind that made its rags whip around. It drove clouds across the pre-dawn sky and snuffed the smoldering herbs in Miss Mortimer's hand. The darkness deepened. I searched everywhere for you, Miss Mortimer murmured. I studied those old books of yours, learned your ways. I never imagined that I would find you back here of all places. It is here that I left this world, and it is here that I return to it. Time has no meaning in the places I've been. Do you know what I had to do to survive there, Eliza? Do you know what I had to do to come back? I can't even imagine. But the soul of that little boy, Matilda. How could you? How many others were there? How many more will there be? Miss Mortimer's hands had balled into fists, and I was surprised to see tears in her eyes. The person that I loved would never have stolen the lives of others just to stay alive herself. As Miss Mortimer spoke, I noticed that Matilda's hands were moving. Those long pale fingers extracted something from inside those ragged sleeves, something like a small brass dart. Look out, she's got something... I screamed, but my shout died in my throat as Matilda spun and hurled the dart into my chest. No! Miss Mortimer ran to me, Johann and Abigail at her heels. The last thing I saw before my vision faded was a great black bird taking flight beside the cemetery gate. Are you too sure you want to do this? If you do, there's no going back. Time had passed, I couldn't have said how much. Miss Mortimer's voice sounded distant as though I was deep underwater. I was lying in my bed back in the cottage, but... How strange, I couldn't move. I couldn't feel anything. Not even my own breath. Was I... Miss Mortimer had made a ring around me with some kind of colored powder. Her red notebook was open in front of her and to her right. Johann and Abigail stood holding hands. Well, sure... Abigail nodded. I was getting bored with the creek anyway. I reckon it was about time I moved on too. And if it helps out our friend. Alright then, if you're ready. Miss Mortimer nodded and then wrinkled her brow. I knew that look. That was the one that meant I really hope this works. She began to chant. As she did, Johann and Abigail began brighter and brighter until they seemed to be made of light. 
They reached out to touch my chest and their light dimmed and then disappeared. I felt aloud, a sudden pounding inside my chest. It took me a minute to realize that it was my own heartbeat. Johan, Abigail, your friends have moved on. Miss Mortimer leaned over and brushed my sweat-soaked hair away from my forehead. I don't know if they're happier where they are now, but I would like to think so. And Matilda, I whispered. Gone. For now. But I don't think this place is safe any longer. It's a shame. We had such happy memories here. A shadow passed over Miss Mortimer's face. This life on the road is turning out to be more dangerous than I thought. There's still so much that I don't understand. You know, you might be better off back with your parents. No, I shook my head. I don't care if it's dangerous, I'm coming with you. Miss Mortimer tried to hide her smile without much success. I tried to get out of bed, but I slid backwards immediately. Matilda's poisoned dart had left me as weak as a newborn. Miss Mortimer took out a small piece of chalk and placed it in my hand. Rest. We'll be back on the road again before you know it. The chalk circle that took us out of Matilda's cottage was the last bit of magic that I saw Miss Mortimer perform for a long time. When we stepped through it, I found myself standing in a Roman palace. I was surrounded by statues of emperors, marble columns, and slot machines. I had never been to Las Vegas before. I had no idea such a place even existed. Matilda and I came here for my 21st birthday, Miss Mortimer explained, a little sheepishly. It was the only other place that I could think of to go. Surrounded by so much light and sound, it was odd how our lives seemed to quiet down, at least for a while. Miss Mortimer rented a small apartment for us, enrolled me in the local public school system, and got herself a job as a paraeducator in the same elementary school that I attended. She claimed it was just a coincidence, but if so, there were a lot of coincidences that summer. Like the way the school secretary's eyes slid out of focus any time he asked Miss Mortimer for a document that she didn't have. Or the way the apartment rental agent spoke only to her. Like he didn't see me at all. And looking back, maybe he really didn't. I suspected that Miss Mortimer got a job in my school to keep an eye on me. After all, Matilda was still out there. Miss Mortimer and I made a pact not to use the W word, but the fact was that Matilda was a far more accomplished witch than Miss Mortimer had ever been. Could she track us somehow, maybe using a stray hair from my head or a few drops of blood from the dart that she had thrown at me? Neither of us had any idea, but I had a feeling that Miss Mortimer was secretly working to find out. She had had all her books and furniture shipped to our new apartment, and if I ignored the red dirt, cacti, and scorching asphalt outside the window, the living room felt just like her study back in my old neighborhood. Miss Mortimer herself seemed happy to be working with kids, just like she had always wanted. But the light in her room often stayed on until after midnight, and a few of her books never reappeared on their shelf. She was studying something. But what? 
Once I pressed my ear to her door and listened to the words she kept repeating to herself over and over, and then crept back to my bedroom and tried to speak them myself. The first few times nothing happened. On my fourth try, three of my fingers burnt painfully and gave off an awful smell like rotten eggs that lingered even after I had plunged them into cold water. The next morning, Miss Mortimer raised an eyebrow on my blackened fingers but said nothing. What was going on? On one hand, I felt guilty for violating Miss Mortimer's privacy. On the other, I felt left out, especially after all we had been through together. When I snooped around her room while she was at a training, however, I found more than I bargained for. The wall was covered with have you seen me flyers for missing children, all linked by red string? I realized with a chill that the disappearances were probably Matilda's doing, and my face could have just as easily been pinned to her board beside the others. And that wasn't all. There was also a foul-smelling book written in what I would later learn was backwards Latin. A post-it note with thin times, thin places scribbled on it, and a calendar counting down to Halloween, which by then was just a few days away. The Halloweens that I had always known featured chilly nights, swirling autumn leaves and packs of children on the prowl for candy. It turned out that Halloweens in Las Vegas were a lot hotter, a lot brighter, and a lot less kid-friendly. Miss Mortimer and I spent the evening inside scaring ourselves with old movies, and when I went to bed, I thought that she did too. But around midnight, I heard the apartment door creaking open. Miss Mortimer was trying to go someplace silently, and she wasn't using the chalk. She didn't want me to be able to follow her. Of course, I wasn't going to let that stop me. I watched out the window to see which direction she had turned and then headed down into the street. Miss Mortimer turned right, walking out towards the undeveloped desert lots. I frowned. There was nothing out there, not even light. Or so I had thought. As we left the sidewalk and went deeper into the desert night, a building began to take shape out of the darkness. A hotel. I had never seen one there before, but how could I have missed something so big and gaudy? Thin times, thin places. Miss Mortimer's note had said. In spite of the heat, I suddenly felt cold. No cars were parked in front of the hotel and no people stood on the sidewalk. There was nothing around but the blackness of the desert night. And when I turned around, I realized with horror that the city lights behind me were gone as well. It was as if apart from the building in front of me, the rest of the world had ceased to exist. Paradiso read the crimson neon lights, and I hurried to keep up as Miss Mortimer disappeared through the revolving beneath them. I had wanted to stay far enough away that you wouldn't see me, but the night around me had begun to feel oddly and horribly hungry. Maybe the darker than dark shapes in the darkness were just shadows cast by desert cliffs, but maybe not. And was that howling sound the wind or someone wailing? I didn't want to find out, and I didn't wait. I scampered into the hotel lobby and hid beneath an enormous ebony pillar. 
To my surprise, the marble lobby was empty and silent. A gaunt, hollowed-faced man in a black suit and red tie sat behind a round desk, still as a statue. The air was full of that burning, rotten egg smell that I had noticed back in the apartment. I tiptoed through the shadows of the lobby, too eager to eavesdrop on Miss Mortimer's conversation with the thin man to wonder about the odd way my footsteps echoed in the cavernous space. Now that I was closer, I could read the nameplate on the thin man's desk. Kieran. It was hard to hear what they were saying with all the gibbering and jiggling that seemed to come from the shadows around me, but it was something about reservations. Miss Mortimer said that she didn't have one but wanted to make one. The thin man raised an eyebrow. If she wanted to make herself a reservation here, he said, she would need to speak with his superiors. The thin man gestured to the elevators behind him. A brass plaque above them read, Abandoned all hope, ye who enter here. It didn't seem like a very cheerful message for a hotel. The elevator door is opened in front of Miss Mortimer. I had only seconds to follow her. The thin man at the desk watched with silent curiosity as I skidded into the elevator behind Miss Mortimer, just as the door was closing. What on earth are you doing here? I followed you, I thought you might need help. Miss Mortimer pinched the bridge of her nose, took a deep breath and counted to ten. Just stay close to me and promise me something. If I squeeze your hand twice, run as fast as you can and don't look back. And then suddenly we were moving. There were nine floors, I realized, and someone on the second floor had summoned the elevator. To my surprise, we were going down instead of up. Miss Mortimer grabbed my hand, backed us both against the mirrored walls of the elevator, and pressed a finger to her lips. The doors opened. Iron-gray clouds whipped by on the other side, driven by a wind so strong that we had to grab onto the banister of the elevator to avoid being ripped out into the storm. There was no ceiling, no floor, nothing but an endless gale. I thought that I saw arms, legs, the bare skin of someone's back, but that was impossible. No people could survive out there. Could they? Close your eyes, Miss Mortimer whispered. Seconds later, I heard it. Clomp, clomp. Not footsteps, hooves. Something had walked out of the raging winds and into the elevator, and that rotten smell was now stronger than ever. I'm going down, Miss Mortimer asked politely. The response was a bullish snort that seemed to mean, yes, and then we were moving again three floors lower. Miss Mortimer scooted me slowly along the wall, partially to avoid the huge, foul-smelling presence, and partly to protect us from whatever we would find outside the doors when they opened once more. Even sheltered by the thick elevator walls, the heat was almost unbearable. Burning screams, the clang of metal. With a satisfied snort, whatever was sharing the elevator with us, stomped out into the fire and the door slid shut again. For a moment there was no sound but our ragged breasts and the dripping of our own sweat. Miss Mortimer pressed another button and we went down one more floor to our final destination. 
You can open your eyes now, she told me. A square stone corridor waited outside. After everything I had seen and heard so far, its very stillness and quiet were unsettling. Our footsteps echoed eerily as we walked out into it. There were square gaps in the floor and ceiling, and I realized dizzily that there were more corridors that extended up and down for it felt like forever. And come to think of it, this hallway didn't have an end that I could see either, and neither did any of the others that we passed. I looked nervously back at the brass elevator and at my lab. What was this place? What if we got lost? The corridors were lined with square metal doors. Some of them seemed to give off heat, others icy cold. Shrieks, moans, and even insane laughter came from the other side of the blind metal. Miss Mortimer took a few supplies out of her handbag. A silver dish, a stick, clear water, and an earring that I recognized from the cottage. It must have belonged to Matilda. She poured the water into the dish and placed the stick inside, with the earring on its tip. When she held her hand over the strange compass she had made, it began to spin, pointing a path down those endless hallways. And we walked until my feet felt like lead bricks. We turned more times than I could count. Finally, the compass stood still, even though the metal door in front of us was no different from the rest. To my surprise, Miss Mortimer opened it with just a gentle push. These doors only open one way, she sighed. The things inside these rooms are locked up and forgotten, unless somebody comes to let them out again. I wanted to ask Miss Mortimer why we were about to release something that had been imprisoned in this nightmarish place but the tomb-like room in front of us was empty, at least as far as I could see. Miss Mortimer splashed some water through the doorway and it burst into flames. It's probably best if you wait here. I held my breath and watched as Miss Mortimer crossed the threshold, approached a coffin-shaped altar in the center of the room, and picked up a yellowed scroll. I could see by the look on her face that we needed to get out of there fast. She slipped the paper into the folds of her black dress, grabbed my hand and took a right down the next hallway. To my surprise, another elevator was waiting for us. What's going on? I whispered. Miss Mortimer shushed me as we went into the elevator and pressed the button for the lobby. As the floors blinked by, I kept my fingers crossed there wouldn't be any stops that we wouldn't encounter any more of the awful things that dwelt in this place, and that whatever Miss Mortimer had just done, she wouldn't get caught. When the doors of the lobby opened, my sigh of relief died in my throat. At first, I wasn't sure what I was looking at. If the three men standing in the lobby had their backs to me, why was I looking at their faces? The answer was as sickening as it was obvious. Their heads were turned around completely backwards. Black oily tears had blinded their eyes, but somehow I knew that they were staring at Miss Mortimer. One of them started to moan, raising a backwards-facing hand towards where the squirrel was hidden in Miss Mortimer's dress. That was when she squeezed my hand twice. We ran for it, although in my mind I felt more like we flew. As we raced for the door, the facade of the lobby fell away all around us, 
giving away to darkness and the gnashing of teeth. With a sinking feeling, I realized that this was not a hotel. It never had been. It was just the form that my mind had given it to make sense of its infinite horror and insanity. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Up ahead, an enormous black gate carved with maddening images was closing, cutting off our escape, but not fast enough. We slipped through the gap and out the revolving door before crashing, exhausted and into the red dirt of the desert. When we turned around, Paradiso was gone. The light of dawn was just beginning to creep over the desert cliffs. Miss Mortimer pulled the yellowed scroll from her dress. What is that thing? Matilda's contract. Miss Mortimer smiled sadly. This is where she signed away her soul to escape that horrible place. This is what made her a monster that fuels itself by eating the spirits of the dead. If we destroy this, she'll go back to how she was before. I finished excitedly. And the spirits that she consumed will be set free. Miss Mortimer nodded. She poured more water into the silver dish and spread the scroll across it. And as she did, the ancient paper began to smoke and finally dissolve. When it was nothing but mush, she poured it out into the sand and stomped on it. We walked back to our apartment on the outskirts of the city, too tired to speak. Miss Mortimer unlocked the door and I stepped through after her. But then someone else stepped through after me. I gasped and backed against the wall as a pale woman threw her arms around Miss Mortimer in a tight and joyful hug. I had no idea who she was at first, and then I recognized her dark blue eyes. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always... Stay creepy.